This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. So 2-1 Phillies, huh? Yeah, well, <laughs> we took three of the four-game series, so I'm not complaining. That's not bad. And we're 5-2 and two on the road, or on, on this road trip, so. Nice. Yep. It's pretty good. Now it's time to go back home and face the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. You feeling okay about that? At the moment, uh, if you had asked me that a couple weeks ago, I would have said no. Yeah. But right now, the Dodgers are in a bit of a skid. How'd they do today? Have they played yet? I don't. Uh, they're off today. Oh, okay. But I think they got swept by the Pirates. Mm. And they almost got swept by the Cardinals before that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I could do a sports podcast, I think. Just baseball? Yeah, just baseball. Yeah. And beer. I could do half that. You could you could talk to me about baseball while I just drink. And you just I'd respond be, with beer. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, you know it goes with a with a triple. A nice nice IPA with a clever pun name. Right. Hoptimus like, Prime. Tricera hops. Tricera hops. <laughs> Modus Hopperonde. That's a good one. <laughs> that one's they thought a little too hard on that yeah. one. I think it's good, but they're really digging. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Gordon in Boston. And this is Build Phase. My, I, I tell you, for my wedding, my, my wife's last name, uh, her maiden name is um, Mode, M-O-D-H. So for my buddy brews beer, and so for my wedding, he made like three kegs of Modus Hopperandi, but it was M-O-D-H, so it was like double pun. It's like Mode, <laughs> Modus Hopperandi, but it, it was wild. It's like, yeah, man. It's pretty good. I think I still have a case of it. It's like four years old almost. Still tastes good. So what's up? Oh, nothing. Weird week. Yeah, did we already do an episode this week? Or no, we did one Friday. Right. Last week was when we did two in a row. Yeah, which we can't do. No, we shouldn't do that anymore. That I'm came feeling- out okay. Last week's came out. Or this week's, whatever. Time. I don't know how podcasts work. I'm never happy with those episodes. I always walk out depressed. But they always sound better than you think they will. Oh, yeah. So what happened this week? You want to talk about Swift? Access control? Ah, yeah. I sense Mm -hmm. opinions in you. I do. I think they've mellowed out over the past week, but I was, like, raging pretty hard earlier this week. I've been pretty indifferent to this stuff. Well, you haven't been dealing with it too much, have you? Like, Well, no. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying, like, you know. I'm being a bit curmudgeonly about it. Yeah. Like, I'm still kind of being a bit cynical about mm-hmm. Swift. Swift in general? It, it, Swift at the moment, at the current moment, I mean. Mm-hmm. In what way? I'm still not sold that it's it makes for a better application or better code or safer code or that I can develop in it faster or that it's less code. I just don't see any of that happening yet. Yeah. So it's definitely a safer language, though. Like, you've got to see that, right? Like, the type system itself makes for a safer language. I think that's the case when Swift stands alone. That's, but when that's, you start... that's what I'm saying. That's, that's all I'm saying, right? Is okay. That, yes, so... it's a safer language. But, but we're getting to the same thing, which is my 
prevailing opinion right now too, which is that all of that is kind of ruined by Coco. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Disillusioned is the word that keeps coming to mind about this. You know what I mean? Cause I keep reading Swift code and I think it's fine, but it's not clicking for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm never seeing things and being like, Oh yes. Okay. I'll, like anything touching Coco anyway. I never see anything. I haven't seen anything yet from anybody that's been real applica- application code that's made me say, oh, yes, that it right there is why I want to write this in Swift. I've been getting little bits of that. Like, I'll just be like, hey, I could really use a tuple right here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just little one-off cases like that. Yeah. But even places where the language would help, right? Like, Tony's writing a lot in Swift right now. And one of the things that, and he wrote this thing that is like a view controller that took an event and then it, you know, did whatever, you know, so it's like an event view controller, whatever. But he had to make it an optional event. Like he had to because of the way Swift works where all your variables, all your properties have to have value, the value set at the time of instantiation. But it was being instantiated by the storyboard. So all of a sudden where you would get this really nice type safety, like you literally can't create this thing without giving it an event. And you're ensuring the fact that this view controller will always have an event, right? And encoding that into the type system. Like that is super, super powerful. And it's ruined by the fact that, well, I have to make it an optional because the way I'm instantiating it, which makes a whole bunch of other things convenient, but because of that, because I'm, because I have to instantiate it this way, I can't set it at the time of instantiation. It's like stuff like that that I'm just like, God damn it. Like, And I don't want to go back. I really don't want to backpedal, and I don't want to go back to a time pre-storyboards. You know what I mean? Because that's the other option here. The other option is to move back, move away from storyboards, instantiate everything in code directly, right? Set all that stuff up yourself. I like storyboards. I really do. I think that they they remove way more code and they help me a lot more than Swift is right now. You know what I mean? So I'm not willing to make the sacrifice of losing storyboards in order to gain this type safety. But it's just a bummer that the system doesn't seem like it works for swift you know what i mean it's just like the entire concept of how apps are built parts of it don't work with swift not don't work that's being harsh but they don't they don't mesh as closely as i would like mm-hmm. your storyboard cases applies to swift but applies to objective c as well yeah i've always been frustrated by the inability to customize how things are initialized yes the storyboard. yes and that was that was tony's argument when i kind of was like I wasn't bitching at him. I was just kind of like whining about it in the pull request. And he was like, you know, this is the way it is in Objective-C now. I was like, I know. But like the whole point of Swift is to be able to do these more powerful things. You know what I mean? Like the only reason the event is optional is because of implementation details about how the thing is created inside this closed system. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's not an implementation of the actual class. It isn't. As far as the class is concerned, that thing shouldn't be optional. That view controller should not be able to be created with a nil event. Why would you want to do that? That shouldn't be a thing that you can do, right? Mm -hmm. Swift lets us encode that in the type system. 
and then storyboards and Coco break that. It's like everything. It's like everywhere else that Swift cut, touches Coco, just optionals. Like optionals are handy, and I understand why they're everywhere because you have to. Because for all intents and purposes, Objective C doesn't have a type system, right? It's got this weak type system, but it's not actually enforcing anything. You know what I mean? So you have to have some sort of an optional interface when you're interfacing with Objective C. I just think it sucks that you take this language that I'm 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 actually in love with, right? I love Swift. I think it's a fantastic language. I've I'm really enjoying playing around with it inside other contexts that aren't Coco. But I just can't shake this feeling that Coco is screwing things up. Forcing you to compromise on yes. the design of your of your architecture and your application right. just to accommodate the framework. Right, exactly. And I don't feel that way when I'm writing in Objective-C. And that makes sense because Cocoa is designed with Objective-C in mind. You know what I mean? So it works the way Objective-C works. I also understand that like, it's not like we can get a perfect Swift interface to Cocoa right off the bat. Unfortunately, it makes me wonder if I should be writing apps in Swift yet. You know what I mean? Things like JSON parsing, I'm like, well, might as well just write that bit in Objective-C and then pass it back to Swift. You can, There's libraries out there, Swift-Z. We've been using Swift-Z, which is a um, – it's not even written by Cocoa people, which is kind of nice, but it's bringing a lot of like real functional programming concepts over from like Haskell and other purely functional languages and building them in Swift. And it's super powerful, and it's actually really nice. So we've been using, in this project that Tony's working on, we're using Swift Z to do the JSON parsing, and I actually really like that. But the problem that the problem there's like problems because it's not built into the language, and you have to write this wacky, like I don't want to get into it too too much, but you can't curry or pass the constructor the init method for a class, right? So currying is basically partially applying a function. So classic examples, I have a function add, right? Add takes two arguments, A and B, and it adds those two together and gives you a value, right? So it's a, it's a function that takes two arguments and returns an argument. Well, I can wrap that, like if I'm in Haskell, I can wrap add, I can create a new function that takes one argument and returns one value, and I can call it add two, and I can make the definition of that add, and then just pass in the first argument to. You see what I'm saying? So it's a partially applied, it's returning a partially applied application. I'm not calling add entirely. I'm just creating a new function that will take another value and return and pass it into add and then return the result of that. Does that make sense? Does add to take add as an argument? The no, function no, 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 just one number. Oh, okay. So the fact that it uses add is a like a concrete concept in that function. I'm just it's just the name. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's a con yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's part of the implementation. So the impl the entire implementation of that class is, or that method, I'm again, I'm talking about in Haskell right now, but the entire implementation of that function would be add or add to. Right? And then you wouldn't pass in the second argument. The second argument would get passed when you call add two and pass in three, then it would hand the three 
combine it with the two that's already in the add function and give you five. Got it. So you can't pass, since you can't pass the init method for Swift classes and you can't curry, then you can't curry that either. Means that like basically the way this wants to work, this JSON parsing that we've been doing, and this is all super, I'll try to post, I'll try to remember to post a gist of this or you know, some snippets of this kind of stuff because it's all kind of wacky. And there's some stuff that, that, to be perfectly honest, I still don't have my head wrapped around because it's mathematic, Haskelly, functionally stuff, applicative functors and all, you know, all that stuff that, like, I have a very, 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 very loose grasp on. So the idea behind the way this should work in Swift is that I have an object, a user, for example, that user can be represented in JSON. So I want to take a JSON representation and I want to parse it into a user, right? But what I don't want is I don't want every property that the user has to be optional. I want to know for a fact that a user has a first name and a last name and an email address. And if they, if they are optional values inside of our system, then I would encode them as such in my object. But every user in our system should have an email, a password, Sorry, an e- a first name, a last name, and an email address, right? And so I can encode that in the type system by just making them not optional. If I don't make those optional, they have to have a value, right? So I don't want to sacrifice that just because JSON is this wacky string parsing crap that, like, it gets parsed into a dictionary and then you look it up and it's like, well, maybe there could totally not be a value for, you know, first name inside this user object inside JSON, so I don't want to make the sacrifice of making everything optional on my user model. But, but I do want good, easy JSON parsing. So the way this JSON parsing works is it parses the JSON, but it kind of cascades. So as long as everything succeeds, as long as the parsing for each property succeeds, then the whole thing keeps succeeding. The second one of them fails, if, for example, you don't pull out uh, a first name, You know what I mean? Maybe I typed the key wrong. Maybe the server is sending back the wrong JSON, whatever, either one of those things. If it fails in the parsing of any one thing, the whole thing fails. So you end up with a function like from JSON that you pass JSON into and it returns an optional user. And so that user, it either exists if the parsing succeeded or it fails, you get back none if the parsing failed. You could go further and you could do like an either value, right, which would be either a user or like an NS error with a failure message, for example. So, but the way that works internally with Swift Z uses currying. You want to pass a constructor method into this thing and then use applicative functors to parse each property out. Right, so all you got to know is you pass in a function but with no arguments and then it uses I see this is where this is where my understanding starts to fall apart. But it uses it basically parses each object out and then passes those in one by one as parameters. Am I understanding that it it takes the function, it gets to the first thing, say first name, applies first name, takes the result of that, and then goes down the neck down the chain. It tries. So if you think about currying, right? So if I have a, my user constructor takes three arguments now: first name, last name, email address. Right, so the first thing, so if I pass in that constructor to this function, and then I parse the first name out, 
it just applies first names. And I have a constructor, so that returns a function that takes two properties, or two arguments, right? Just last name and email address. Then I parse the last name, and that returns a function that takes one argument, which is just the email address. And then I parse the email address, and now I finally have my everything satisfied, so it returns the full user, right? But then if anything fails along the way, it just bails on the entire thing. Am I crazy, or, does this, or is this a way of effectively doing procedural programming in a functional-like language? Functional programming can feel very procedural, yes. I mean, I'm not a functional expert, so I can't argue if it is or isn't procedural. But yeah, it does feel procedural. It's just kind of wrapped up in a nice... Yeah, right. You're. It's like you really. What you really are doing is you're like, effectively mutating this thing step by step. You know, and it can fail anywhere along the way. But instead of like mutating an object, you're repeatedly passing the result of the prior function down. Yes. So that gets to the problem that I was trying to point out, which is that since you can't actually pass the constructor function for a user, you can't. You can't pass in it at all. You can only call init with arguments. You can't pass init as an argument itself, right? It's not treated as a normal function. It's treated as a special thing. So since you can't do that, the way, the way you have to make this work is that, you know, we create a new function called create that takes the same number of arguments as the constructor. So we're basically duplicating the constructor, right, as this create function. And then the implementation of the create function is closures nested closures so it's like first name in closure last name in closure email in closure or email in and then passes all those into the constructor see what i'm saying the way what it, what actually happens is you still get that bailing at any moment but when it's actually unwrapping those it's just when it's doing the currying it ends up grabbing that first closure from this create function and it says, oh, this takes in a first name. That's all this closure takes. So it passes in that first name. And then what it gets back is another closure. It's like, oh, this just takes a last name. So it passes in that last name. And then it says, oh, this just takes an email address. So it passes in the email address. And then what it gets back is, a, is the user object. Because then it, the result of the last name or the email address's closure returns a user object. But like, you have to write that for every single class. They're boilerplate code. They're kind of stupid functions to write honestly you know like we went through three or four different iterations of what this could look like and this is kind of what we settled on and it's the best thing out there you know what i mean it's not a horrible way to deal with json um it's a hell of a lot better than a lot of the json parsing libraries that just end up using dictionaries and optionals and it looks like crap and you just have question marks everywhere and chained question marks it's like that it feels bad Right, That doesn't feel like the right way to handle it. This feels like the right way to handle it, except for that there's this one gaping hole of not being able to pass constructor methods. You know, I have no idea where I was going with that. <laughs> Most of my problems with Swift right now come from the fact that I just don't think it works very well with Cocoa. But my other problem with Swift is that I don't know what the hell I'm doing, right? Like, I honestly have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea, and this is an experience thing, but I'm never convinced that we're 
doing things the right way. I tend to feel like we, like as a community, are using Swift as if it's Objective-C, right? Like it feels a lot like writing Objective-C with a different, weirder syntax. And I don't know that that's a big enough shift to make you want to move away from Objective-C. Are we talking about writing raw Swift right now or writing Swift with the frameworks? Swift with the frameworks. Swift for applications. Because there's there's very few code examples out there of people not doing that. You know, I'm working very, 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 very slowly on, and it's not even something I'm sure we're going to do. Like, it's not even under the ThoughtBot organization. But since WWC, I've been looking at rewriting Liftoff in Swift. I think it would be interesting to have that be the language that that's written in. None of that. Nothing that I've written in. I just keep writing stuff and deleting stuff and writing stuff and deleting stuff. But none of that feels like Objective-C to me. None of it. If anything, I'm writing it more like Ruby because I'm trying to take Ruby code and port it to some extent. And so I'm trying to figure out the best way to deal with some of the same, like, like I need a command line parser. You know what I mean? So the command line parser that I'm looking at is the one that I used in Ruby. So it's like, okay, well, I can try to mimic this in Swift. You know, so that doesn't feel like Objective-C at all. But all of the other code, all the application code I've seen feels very much like Objective-C with a different syntax. Do you find that you are still having a hard time parsing it, Mm. reading Swift? My, my big problem with doing code review in Swift is that I don't have the same intuition about Swift that I have with Objective-C. Right. It's very much I'm very aware of the translation that's happening in my head as I'm reading Swift. Which is from Swift to Objective-C. Right, like putting the concepts in a more familiar language so that I can understand. Whereas when I'm looking at Objective-C code, I can look at a huge block of a file and just kind of scan the, the code shape You know, and like quickly grok all the types and and it immediately becomes this sort of like 3D landscape in my head where I see how everything's connected. That does not happen yet in Swift. In Swift, it's very much letters on a page and it's a real struggle to, you know, have it come together. Yeah. I mean, I think that's just an exposure thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like how long have we been writing Objective-C hours upon hours upon hours of a day? You know what I mean? And like I haven't done that once with swift i've spent maybe total i'd probably say maybe five six hours actually sitting down in front of a computer writing swift tops if that you know what i mean and a lot of that time has been spent going like i have no idea you know like i like i literally i don't even know being back to that point where it's like i don't know what's possible in this language is part of it part of it's like i don't have i don't feel like i have the same level of guidance I don't have the same level of understanding of, uh, it gets back to what I was saying before. I, I don't know what it should look like. You know, I don't know what good Swift code looks like. I have no idea. And that makes it harder to write because I don't have anything to directly emulate. I've got a pretty good idea at this point of what good Objective-C looks like. I got a pretty decent idea of what good Ruby looks like. I'm honestly clueless about Swift. And, and I do think that this is all a an exposure thing, you know. I think with time, all this will come. It's going to be fine, but it's so frustrating right now. Yeah, I need something to work on. 
I, I won't understand it until I have something that's, you know, a simple-ish problem that I have to solve in Swift. Right. I can't just read the Swift book a few no. times. And I, you know, I, have you I finished that? Yeah, I have. You did? Man, I've gone I back can't. and skimmed parts of it. I don't think I'm going to finish it. I know you're not a technical book guy. I, I mean, I've been trying to read that thing since WWDC, and I think I'm like 300 pages in. Maybe not even. Have you been working through it, though? No. Like trying the code samples in the mm-hmm. playground? I think that would make a difference. Yeah, but then I have to be on my computer. Right. I mean, I've been reading it. But kind of the big reason that I'm thinking about bailing on it is because I feel like I've got a pretty good understanding of all the stuff that's in the book already. Maybe there's later chapters that I just have no idea even exist. But, like, even the stuff that I initially at WWDC was like, what the hell is that? Autoclosure. You know, like, I saw that pop up, and it was just, like, no clue. Just looking at it, just being like, I have no idea what that does. I have no idea what that means. And I was like, oh, I can't wait till I get to that part in the book. I've totally just gotten that through osmosis at this point. Like, I get autoclosure. I totally understand what it does. It's very, very simple. I don't need to read a chapter on autoclosure to understand what it does. Plus, there's other things that I think would be more beneficial to me getting better at Swift. Stuff like rereading chapters of Learn You Haskell and getting better at some of those functional concepts. You know? That's my next step. Because I do think, I, I keep saying this, but I do think that that's the place where Swift gets interesting to me. Being able to use functional concepts inside an imperative language. Because Swift is an imperative language. It's not a functional language. But because you can do things like with Swift Z, for example, you can get things like applicative. right? And so you can start using applicative functors. And you can start doing this kind of stuff that is pretty wacky, hard to grok stuff for me. You know, I'd rather learn more about that and try to train my brain to think that way. You know, I think that'll make me a better, I don't think it'll make me necessarily just better at Swift. I think that stuff will make me a better programmer. Whereas learning the Swift syntax is just going to make me better at Swift and probably not by as much as if I can get this mental pivot further down the line. You know what I mean? Joe Ferris is a good example of this, right? Joe Ferris has not read, or he's our CTO here at ThoughtBot, right? He has not read the Swift book, right? He's spent very little time playing around with Swift. But he was able to sit down with Tony, look at Swift Z, and be like, oh, okay, here's how we can use this JSON parsing, and was writing code all day last week trying to figure out JSON parsing. And, like, what he ended up with was great. You know, like it's the one, it's one of those examples of like, oh, that's good Swift code, right? Again, it didn't touch Coco at all, but it's like, oh, that's actually interesting to me. You know what I mean? Changing the way we parse JSON into this more straightforward, uh, all or nothing approach. Like, I really kind of like that. You know what I mean? Like, encoding stuff in type systems, and, you know, I'm a big fan of all that stuff. And so, what he ended up with was great, but he, it's not, he didn't learn that because he knows the Swift syntax. You know, syntax is nonsense. He, he, he was good at that because he was able to take his strong functional concepts and apply those directly to Swift. So I guess the difference between us and Joe is that our understanding of concepts are tied to a language, whereas his are not. Yeah. Yeah. Roughly. Broadly speaking, yeah. I mean, Joe's also a genius. <laughs> he's like one of the smartest people I met, but that's, that's it too. You know what I mean? He's very much a true polyglot in that sense. He's able to just 
pick up languages and apply central concepts to those languages very quickly. I am not. I've re- I've I've written many mm-hmm. languages, but I don't consider myself a polyglot. Mm-hmm. I mean, the two I've been proficient in, they don't make me a polyglot. Right. PHP and Objective C, like right. <laughs> nothing I learn in PHP helps me. If, if anything, it hinders me. I wish I could just go back and unlearn. Right. I I mean I don't think it's outside of the realm of anybody's ability to get there, and I do think that it's in. Ah oh man, you know you you know what I was explaining as is like people that are truly multilingual, right? Like people that can speak English and French and Spanish and multiple spoken languages. Like you were saying before about reading Swift code and translating it in your head into Objective-C, like that's something that most people do with spoken languages as well, right? You know, when I go to, if I go to Mexico and I'm going to speak Spanish, I'm not speaking Spanish, I'm speaking English in my head and then translating it into a Spanish-ish language, Right. You're not thinking yeah. in Spanish. Exactly. I'm not taking the concepts that I want to describe and just applying them in Spanish. That extra jump makes a difference. It's a difference between someone that is truly multilingual and someone that is just like me. Like, I can, you know, I can ask where the bathroom is. <laughs> you know, that's about it. In like two or three languages, you know, but whatever. <laughs> and like my dad, my dad actually speaks really good French. So they go to France and he just, he can speak French. He can speak conversational French. He can speak French enough that like when he starts speaking French, they don't immediately start speaking back in English, right? They continue the conversation in French, which is like a big, that's a big milestone. If you can Especially get in France. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a, so it's a big milestone if you can get to that point where native speakers will just it's easier for me to continue, you know, you're, you're doing a good enough job that I'm going to continue speaking to you in my native language. Um, I firmly believe that you can do that in coding languages as well, computer languages as well. And I think it takes the same skills. I think it takes the same mental set to be able to do that. I think a math background helps. Do you? I don't have, I I don't have any math background, man. And, and I feel like I'm okay at it. Like I wouldn't, call myself necessarily a polyglot either but i'm i'm okay in ruby i'm okay in i'm not okay in haskell i'm horrible at haskell but like i can look at it and be like yeah that's haskell you know i was referring to the ability of being able to write or understand a language that you're not necessarily proficient in right off the bat mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like having a math foundation helps there yeah it, it's so. it, it's a bridge it, mm. you know you can always drop into like you know, math concepts to understand something and then mm-hmm. come back up in another language and be like, you know, as long as you, you know, you ask a few questions about syntax and, mm-hmm. you know, how do you represent this thing? Mm-hmm. Then you're fine. You know, you have that safety net of math beneath you. Yeah. I think the other thing here is that, is that, cause I've always felt okay when applying imperative concepts, right? You get down conditional loop, loops, variables, those kind of things, classes, inheritance, methods, instance methods, you get those kind of core concepts down. You can honestly, you could probably jump around to object oriented languages. Like you could jump into Ruby, right? You're not a Rubyist, but you could jump into Rubyist. You could have a general idea of the kind of things that you want to write. You know, like, okay, well I need to create a class to encapsulate these concepts. You know, how do I do that? You know? So again, it's, it's down to syntax. 
But the bottom line is like those concepts are easily applicable. They're the same in Objective-C. They're the same in Ruby at like a high, high level. The big problem is that moving to something like Haskell or to a lesser extent Swift is that like those concepts don't apply to functional programming. Those are imperative, object-oriented concepts. They do not apply to true functional programming. So you really do have to change your thinking. You know, there are no loops. There are no conditionals. There are no classes in in Haskell. There's none of those things, you know what I mean? It's like, well, then how the hell do I solve problems? There's no variables. You know, everything's just functions, functions, and functions, and functions. It's like, how the hell do I solve problems if I don't have a conditional? How do I, how do I solve problems if I can't, like, loop through uh, a collection? To draw a rough analogy, I see if, if you're someone who can picture, you know, imperative code as, a, like, a 3D landscape, then I see, like, functional code as, like, adding the element of time. You know, like, if you can picture an architecture laid out in three dimensions, you know, that's imperative code then functional is the same thing but with time applied hmm. it's not just like here's where things are connected to one another and where they're laid out it's also here's where they're laid out in time mm-hmm. like you know values are coming yep. this way and into this object at this time and it goes here after that yeah it's like that haskell haskell that is doesn't define what things are it defines like you don't have variables in haskell right because you're not saying this is this. You're just describing how things act, kind of. I think that's right. I'm probably butchering this. But you describe how things behave. And by describing all these behaviors at a type level, you can then hook them up together. I, th- I think I've heard it as, is it, it doesn't describe how things do things. It just describes what things do. Yes. Is that right? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. I, I, I can't remember, honestly, which I should have been able to remember if I was going to start talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's the difference between like walking someone along by the hand, showing them what to do instead of just teaching them what to do and then letting them go off and do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So bringing this back around to Swift. First off, do you have opinions on the access control stuff? No. <laughs> I didn't really think about that. Yeah. Uh, no, because I, I didn't dive in. I, I know the gist. I know you have three types, pu- public, private, and internal, mm-hmm. and I know roughly what they do, but I haven't read enough or understand enough to say that I have, a, I have an opinion. So I really like their decisions in terms of access control. I really do. So like you were saying, like the th- the, you have three versions, public, private, internal, Public is what it sounds like. It's available to anybody. Private is only available to, uh, I believe they said that file, which is a weird distinction to make. They didn't say that class. They said like that file. Like 99% sure on that. And internal, it's available to anything else inside that target, which ends up being inside that module. You know what I mean? Can we back up to private real quick? Yes. Are you saying then that if I declare something in an extension and it's private, it's only available in that extension? No. Well, if the file, if the extension's in a different file. Yeah. I think. Right. Hold on. I'm going to look this up because okay. I'm, I'm like 99% sure that's the term that they use. Let's go. This harpoon is warm. 
What about that was so funny? <laughs> this, the lip smacking after? Yes. yes. <laughs> That's what I do when I drink beer, man. You, yeah, you you look like you really knew how to drink beer. Like you're a professional. You're like testing the yeah the flavor profile, and you're like letting it cascade across your palate. No. <laughs> Oh, man, the Internet is so slow. But so public, private, and then internal, which says it's available inside the, the module. The default is internal, which I think is interesting because it's essentially public when you're inside the context of an application, right? And all of your files are linked into the same app target. Then essentially everything becomes public. You know, which I think is kind of an interesting default, and that's technically that's the way it was in Objective C, right? There's no actual such thing as public or private. There is no access control in Objective C, except for what you're exposing via headers. But that's not actually making things public or private. That's just loosely defining this. You know what I mean? Like you can prove that it's not public or private because you can do selector from string and call private methods you can declare your own headers like that's what we do when we're linking against private frameworks for wacky xcode plugins and whatnot is you can just define like xcode.h and you can define all those classes yourself the headers for those classes and they can interact with them like you would anything else right so there's nothing inherently magic about a header that makes things public or private so this internal designation kind of maintains that concept of like everything is kind of publicish. Hold on, I'm finally pulling this up. Yeah, so private entities can only be accessed from within the source file where they are defined. So it does not say that it can only be accessed by the class that defines it. It says it can only be accessed from within the source file where they're defined. So I do think that means if you put an extension, have a private extension, and you throw it in a different file, the main class can't get to it. But within an application, you could just leave it undecorated. Defaults Correct. to internal, that's fine. Correct. And public would work. Public would work, yeah. So I think the internal default, I think it makes total sense for basically everything. Because for app developers, you can basically ignore it. You can, you can build applications and completely ignore access control. 100%. You can do that. Which is nice. You know what I mean? That's a nice default to have. It's nice to be able to say, I don't actually really care about access control here, so I'm just not going to worry about it. I think Chris Latner said on the on the dev forums that that was made especially to make it easier for beginners to get up and running with Swift and yep. not forcing them to think about scoping yep. like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's that's fantastic. I think that's a great idea. And then beyond that, for framework developers... Having it be internal, which means scoped to your module, but you can't access it from outside your module, that's a perfect default for them too because you want to whitelist properties and functions for your framework's uh, interface. You don't want to blacklist stuff for your interface. You know, So if stuff is truly, truly private to a specific class, you can mark it as such. But most of the time... You can say, this is internal, I don't care, and just mark stuff as public in, in, a, in a framework, you know. And then for application developers, like, we kind of only have to deal with internal, well, with the default, which it's internal, but who kind of who cares? 
we can deal with the default and we can deal with private. You know, we can just selectively mark stuff as private. And then the, the really nice thing is that, like, everybody, of course, immediately, since the way it's implemented and the example, which was a bad example in the Xcode release notes, is like a class and every single thing is annotated. So you have like public class, public var, public var, private set var, public init, funk refresh identity. So that's internal. Public override funk is equal. You know what I mean? Like every single thing is annotating here. And that immediately people started pointing at Java and being like, great, now we have this. But on the forums, on the dev forums, someone pointed out that you can actually apply, you can use extensions and you can apply uh, access control to an ex entire extension. And everything inside that extension gets the access control they give to the extension. So, and, and Chris Latner came in and was like, yes, that's what we intended for you to be doing. And the second I saw that, I was like, that makes perfect sense. You know, that makes total sense. I really like that idea. I really like the idea of breaking your interface up, your, not even your interface, breaking your class up into extensions that, you know, you have a base class and maybe you make the constructor public and the class itself public, and then everything else is extensions. Here's the private extensions, here's the public extensions, here's the internal extensions. That feels like a good compromise to losing headers. I personally love header files yeah. because it gives me focus on what does this thing really do right. from the outside. So I, I, I love that. Yeah. But so there's one big, big, huge, massive for me problem with this whole thing. And it's that this works great in the context of an application that's running inside a single bundle. Where it completely falls apart is the second you talk about unit testing. Because unit tests are in a different bundle. So they're not in the same module as your application target. So nothing that's internal, they don't have access to anything that's marked as internal, which is the default. So if you want to unit test, now you do have to care about this access control. Now you do have to mark stuff up as actually public in a way that you wouldn't have had to deal with if you weren't unit testing, right? It puts one more barrier in your way for unit testing, right? It's hard enough to get people to want a unit test as it is. And this is just like another thing that you have to say like, yes, you have to write more code. Yes, it's going to take a little bit more time. Yes, you have to do a little more setup. Yes, you have to maintain these, these tests. Now, yes, you have to declare things as public where you wouldn't have had to do that before. So now it's actually changing your implementation in a way that honestly isn't meaningful outside of the context of unit tests. You know, you could leave these things as the default. You leave them as internal and they would act the same. They would functionally be the same inside your application target. They would be the same as if you had marked them as public. But since you're unit testing, you have to go out of your way and add these extra annotations and open classes up to be actually public. And it's just like, it's depressing a little bit. Because it scares me. It scares me because the, the release notes, you know, say something like a limitation of the access control system is that unit tests cannot interact with, cla with the classes and methods in an application unless they are marked public. This is because the unit test target is not part of the application module. That's all it says. 
It doesn't say it's a bug. It doesn't have this listed under known issues. It just has it listed as a side note as like, yeah, this is kind of the way it works now. That sucks. And they kind of move on. You know what I mean? And that's, that's terrifying for me as a big proponent, uh, as a big proponent of testing because it kind of strengthens that feeling of like Apple doesn't test. They don't really care about testing. They don't think it's valuable. And so their attitudes toward testing are changing or putting up roadblocks. Well, I have two questions. Yeah. And I'll start with, do you think it's Swift's responsibility to change its access control? And remember, we agreed that in the context of an application, it's great to work around how, you know, unit test targets and application targets just happen to coexist within an Xcode project. No, I don't, I don't think that's a responsibility of Swift. I think Swift is doing the right thing here. I think that, like I said at the beginning of this, I think that these, this access control mechanism is right. I think this is the right mechanism for access control. I think these are the right definitions. I think this is the right implementation. I think everything about this is right. I think it's unfortunate that this is a side effect, right? And I think that it's unfortunate that this is a side effect that gets so little, just this kind of like hand-wavy note. Do you think it's likely that they left it out of there and didn't didn't mark it as an, a bug or a known issue because that would have set the expectation that Swift's access control will change in a future release to accommodate unit testing when maybe their plan is to change how it works at the Xcode level so it's not even an issue? Yeah, possibly. I there there is the only other piece of communication on this that I've seen is one note from Chris Latner on the dev forums and the same thing that they're talking about in the same thread is that all the other access control stuff. Someone complained about you know someone was like yeah this is great basically saying what I'm saying here this is great we like this I'm really disappointed at how this in- impacts unit tests and the next post is like him is Chris Latner and he's just like yeah you know that's something that we're well aware of we're trying to find a way around it because i do think that i think that the solution here is just to give unit test bundles like a magic switch you know i'm making it sound easier than it is obviously but i think the answer is not to change swift i think the answer is to change the way unit test bundles interact with their host applications and i think the answer is for them to get special treatment with regard to internal versus public mm-hmm that's what I want to see. I want to see that change. I want to see stuff get easier from the tools side of things. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, and I, I think that notice was pur- purposely non-committal for that reason. Because it's in the context of Swift notes, you know, they're saying, hey, this is a, a thing. Except but, for it's, it's, it's not in the context of Swift notes, though. It's not. Because these are the Xcode release notes. I think it totally would have been reasonable for them to say... I know that they're, they're never going to promise future things, but you could have put this in the known issues of the of Xcode itself, not of Swift, of Xcode. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Put this under in, in known issues in the release notes under the Xcode heading and say, currently, Swift's access control, you know, just have it be a known issue. Don't say whether you're going to fix it or not. It's just a known issue. Putting it in as a known issue as a post a part of the release notes would have made me feel at least a little bit better about this. And I, I am cautiously optimistic that they're trying to fix it at the Xcode level, but yeah, my, my other feeling is that if they had a roadmap for the fixing this and it was going to make it by the GM of Xcode six, then maybe that would have been there. 
but it could be that they don't have a solid plan for how to fix this yet. And so it won't come until like six, one, six, two, something like that. But I do have to hand it to the Swift team for staunchly putting Swift first over compatibility with legacy systems. Yes. No, I, I agree there. Yeah. That can only be a good thing. Wow, we've been at this for an hour. I know. We, we haven't done a show like this in a while. I know. I know. I feel like I keep keep. Uh, no, no, I can't. Yeah. Well, maybe next week. Just right. save it up. All right. Let's, let's put a cork in this one. All right. Show notes for this episode are going to be found at build. No, we keep doing this. What the hell? I went like forty-seven episodes and nailing this shit, and then all of a sudden I'm just like mushmouth. <laughs> I'm going to see if that domain is available by the way. <laughs> Mushmouth. No, buildface.com. <laughs> All right. Oh. I wish we could leave <laughs> Mushmouth in you this episode so it. that could be the title. <laughs> you can bleep it. <laughs> Show notes for this episode are going to be found at podcasts.thoughtbot.com/slash buildphase/48. As always, we'd like to hear from you, so email us at buildphase at thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. We also appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. Good rant. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Talk to you later. All right, later. Later.